Last week I shared with you a couple of baseball pictures and and showed you what a, a good swing looks like and all of that. And I was really, I'm thinking, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm making... Making folks understand how wonderful the game of baseball really is. I mean, I'm on a one-man crusade, I guess. But, but then a story comes across the wire this past week. I think it even broke Sunday, right after I got done with a sermon, of a very different situation in the game of baseball that almost seemed like a joke at first, honestly, when I saw the headline. There were two teammates for a triple-A team of the Los Angeles Dodgers, a team known as the Albuquerque Isotopes, triple-A farm team, and, and they made the headlines because they got into a fight in the dugout during the game. Not before the game, not after the game, not over an error, but during the game in the dugout, two teammates wearing the same uniform fighting each other. Now, what makes the story more bizarre was if you even just read the headline, you realized this was not your ordinary fight. It's not just a couple of guys who threw a few punches, wound up on the ground, and everybody separates them. Somewhere in the middle of the melee, one of the players bit off part of the ear of another player. I'm like, are you kidding? It's Evander Holyfield Mike Tyson type stuff, you know? And so it was bizarre, and I'm thinking, there's no way that's real. Can you imagine being in the dugout when that happened? I mean, you may not even be a baseball fan, but you say, well, I'm, I paid money to see that. I don't know. But... <laughs> But imagine the oddity of not, not only a fight, but somebody being that vicious towards somebody else. I mean, that sounds so gross and bizarre, and some of you won't hear another thing I've said because that's all you'll picture the rest of the sermon. But it's crazy when you see that happen. Those guys are supposed to be on the same team. If they're going to fight anybody, it's the other team. But they're fighting each other. You know, we have situations that are much more serious when it comes to folks who are supposed to be on the same team fighting and arguing. You've seen that in your own relationships. You've seen it in your families. You've seen it maybe in a, in a business or in a marriage. You've seen the difficulty that can come between relationships. You've seen it probably in church. We have lots of broken relationships and historically church arguments and splits and so on and so forth. People who are at odds with each other who should be playing on the same team. There's no doubt that relationships have the power to make or to break your life, your family, your business, your team, your church, whatever it may be. The Apostle Paul wrote about it in Philippians chapter 4. I want you to turn there with me going to get a little bit of instruction this morning on what it's like to be and to act like we're on the same team. Paul, in a, in a sense, in this letter to the Philippians, he gets to a point in chapter 4, and we've been doing this now for several weeks, so maybe you know the story that Paul was in on house arrest when he wrote this, and about 10 years after he founded this church in Philippi with some great, great people who he loved very much, they had sent him some money because they knew that he was having a difficult time. And he wrote in response to them to say, thank you for that. Here's how I'm doing. I, I'm, I'm making it. I'm, I'm rejoicing in the Lord each and every day. And let me give you some instruction. And one thing he heard about was a disagreement between two ladies in the church. So he's going to address it. And he's a bolder man, I guess, than I am. He's going to address a dispute between two women. Fellas, I... I Sometimes I'd let that sort itself out. But Paul is, is bolder than I am, and that's what he's doing. In chapter 4, he hears about a dispute, and he says, i got to take care of this. And ultimately, what he's going to tell him, look, you're on the same team, so act like it. 
In Philippians chapter 4, we'll read this morning and look at the first five verses. Look at this. So then, my brothers, you are dearly loved and long for. My joy and crown. In this manner, stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I urge now, don't you love Bible names that you can't pronounce? Look at those two names. All week long, I'm dreading the fact I have to read this scripture. And the first one I can get, and the second one I have to look it up. I mean, I'll be honest with you. So don't feel stupid if you look at that and you say, what in the world? There's not even a vowel in there. Is Okay, it's at the end, and there's a couple of Y's. What do they mean? I urge Euodia. How about that? That's good, wasn't it? Y'all are not impressed with this. I worked all week long. Come on. I tried hard. Now, the next one is tough. Synthesi. That's what I got. It's good. I mean, you can see how that's... Uh, anyway, y'all are killing me. I urge these two ladies, whose names are difficult to pronounce, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I, ask also, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Paul's talking to them as if, look, you're on the same team. You've got some issues, I get it, but you have to understand and come back to you're on the same team. It's time to act like it. He's giving some difficult instruction here, and he's talking about the idea in verse 1 that they should stand firm in the Lord, be stable, unmovable, make sure that you're right there the whole time. And it's interesting that he encapsulates all that with talk about relationships. With a dispute that's going on in the church, there's something about standing firm and stability in life and in relationship that is dependent upon how we're getting along with other people. Paul wrote to a church here, so it certainly applies to a church. You'll see that in your notes as we get to it. But obviously the church is made up of individuals, so this applies to all of us individually and together as a church. Stability in life and In church, always dependent upon relationships. And here's the overall truth. Your life and your church are only as stable as the relationships in it. Your life, your church, only as stable as the relationships in it. Paul tells them, stand firm, be stable. And then he talks about a dispute, helps them to try to fix this because he knows that without fixing these disputes, without helping them to understand how to get along with each other in a relationship, stability and telling them just stand firm isn't going to matter. Now, I don't really have to prove that to you. You know that your life goes up and down with your relationships. If relationships are good, things are okay in your life. I, you, you could be the poorest person in the world, not have money to pay the bills, but, but if your relationships are okay, you say, all right, things, at least that's all right. I can handle that. I can get through it because i got people on my side. i got folks on my team. Churches can go through some very difficult times. And in our world today, it's less and less popular, as we well know, to be in a church to, to claim to be a Christian, and yet when we get along, there's something about that that gives us stability, the opportunity to stand firm in the Lord. As your relationships go, so goes your life. And as our relationships go, so goes our church. Paul talks about the instability that these ladies are facing and wants to make sure that they understand how to accomplish stability. And so as I look through this scripture, I always look for, okay, what is he saying to them that can help us understand an overall truth, a universal truth that we can apply to our lives. And 
And when I look at this, talking about the stability, stand firm, our relationships, there are six things that I look at and say, well, maybe there's something to this. The overall truth being that our relationships determine our stability in life and in church. What then can we do? How can we apply something to it? So I've got six things for you this morning that Paul describes and, and, and writes toward. The first, number one, is to lead with love. You want to stabilize your relationships. Let me just tell you this. You may be a person this morning whose relationships are all over the place. You just got issues with everybody. Or they've got issues with you. And maybe, maybe you say, uh, you know, things aren't exactly going. Is there a bird over here? I'm serious. There's something over here. I'm not lying to you. Did you hear it? Okay. Now, I'm not, I'm not making things up. I think it's in there. Is it in there? Okay. I'm not, y'all think I'm crazy. And maybe, maybe I am. But I'm dead serious. I just, I was waiting. I saw you look. All right. We're, I just didn't want to come flying out and everybody screaming duck. All right. Where are we? Bird in the sanctuary. No idea where we go with that. I think we were talking about those of you whose relationships are all over like a bird. It goes up and down. Whew. You know, they, they don't teach you any of this stuff in seminary. None. You know, who was it that said that you don't learn anything? It's Andrew. I don't learn anything. Goodness, how do you preach with a bird in a sanctuary? That's, uh, maybe I'll teach a course on it. Some of you are, are in position where your relationships are just all over the place. They're ruining your life. And some have been in churches where it's just, it's an impossible situation. People just don't get along. I mean, they show up every Sunday and they just plain don't like each other. It's, it's sad. What can you do? How can you add stability? How can you help in that? I'll say this, there are probably people here whose relationships are pretty good right now. And you say, I don't want to mess that up. Everything seems to be going okay. Apply these things to your relationships. You will either help to firm them up or to make sure that they don't become unstable. The first is to lead with love. Paul is addressing a very difficult situation. And look what he says. Five different terms of love and affection. He says, so then, my brothers. He uses family terminology. Let me just say this. Ladies, when you see that terminology, the King James says, brethren, you might think, well, I guess I'm not even part of the picture. It's just talking about the men. When, when Paul or anybody else in the New Testament mentions the whole family of God, all the believers in Jesus as brothers, he's raising the bar for women. I want you to know that. Women in this particular culture were viewed as little more than property. And so when they are viewed now as brothers, they are viewed as equal heirs to the kingdom. They never had that status before Jesus. Understand that it's not a slam, it is a raising up. You now have equal status, he's he's saying. Don't you believe that you're a lesser citizen in God's kingdom? Don't believe it. He's raising women up to the same level as men on equal rights before the cross of Jesus Christ. We're all in need and we all have access. And so understand that. That's what he's talking about. He says, brothers, you're part of my family. Now that family language would have meant a lot to them. You know why? Because a lot of those Christians have left behind their families to follow Jesus. Tough for them. He says, you're my brothers. We're we're family. And then he goes on. He says, you are dearly loved. You're my prized possession, he says. I I value you. You're not just family. You know how you tolerate some of your family sometimes just because you're related? They may be here. Don't laugh. They might be in the room with you. But you know how you get together at a family reunion, you go home for Christmas or Thanksgiving or wherever it is, and you just sort of get through it. You just dread that. Well, we're family. I just got to kind of, you know, get them present again this year. Paul says, not only are we family, but I love you. I value you. I don't just tolerate you. I don't just put up with you. I love you. 
He says, you're dearly loved and you're longed for. They'd send him some money. He's not saying, I long for some more of that. He just says, I long for you. I want to be with you. You're so incredibly special to me. I just want to be with you. And then he says, you're my joy. You're the reason for my gladness. Paul's already talked to him about how I thank God for you. I'm praying for you. I love you so much just because of who you are, not because of all the stuff you've done for the Lord or done for me, just because of who you are. I love you. You're my joy. And he says, you're my crown. It's like I'm wearing you around. You're what I'm proud of. And then he addresses a difficult issue. Isn't it interesting how Paul leads with love? It's amazing to me that, that leading with love is such a diffuser of anger, potential problems. When you lead with love, it just means that you're giving benefit of the doubt, that you're forgiving somebody, that you start with a clean slate. One of the things that I've learned in my life that's been so difficult and yet so freeing and I hope so powerful in my relationships that I've been taught over time is simply every time I interact with somebody, I try to start with a clean slate. I I try to treat it as if this is the first time I've ever talked to them. That's hard. And I'm no good at it, I'll be honest with you. But that's one thing I'm trying to get to. Does that mean that I I just ignore everything they've done? No, that's not what I'm talking about. I understand the depth of of pain that can come, but I'm just saying in most relationships, that's all I try to do is just say, God, I'm going to start over today. Try to treat this person as if it's the first time. That's leading with love, I believe, what Paul is talking about. Just so to, to lead with, with uh, I'm going to give you a benefit of the doubt. I'm going to be gracious as best I can. He talked about in 1 Corinthians what it's like to not be that. 1 Corinthians 13, he says, you know, if you, if you can do all these great things, but if you don't truly love people, you're just making noise. You're useless. It doesn't matter. It has no significance. Without love, there can be no depth and no stability in your relationships or in the church. So in your life, in any relationship that it's at all possible, as it depends on you, lead with love. Yes, you may have to correct. Yes, you may have to rebuke. Yes, you may have to instruct. But lead with love every chance you get. And in the church, as we relate to one another, let's treat one another just like Paul says, brothers, dearly loved, long for my joy, my crown. Secondly, strive for unity, not uniformity. Strive for unity, not uniformity. He goes back to the ladies whose names are tough, and he says, I urge you to agree in the Lord. He says, I urge you. He calls them over to the side. It's like taking a timeout, and the coach comes and puts his arm around you. Well, I was coaching a couple of games yesterday with some baseball boys, and there were a couple of times where I had to pull a kid over to the side, mine being one of them, and give them a little bit of encouragement, if you will. This is what we're going to do. Pull him over. That's kind of what Paul's saying. Hey, come here. I'm, I, I need to get you over to the side. Let me go over this with you. This is the way that you need to handle it. You can kind of see Paul, sort of the coach there, pulling him over to the side. He says, I urge you to agree in the Lord. You realize it's always the goal of Satan to disrupt your relationships and to destroy the church. Always. This is where it comes from. And so he knows, Paul knows that this is, this is a disagreement that he can't tell them, look, just stop being babies. This comes from somewhere else. This is a deep rift they've got going on. We don't know the issue. We don't know completely what they're dealing with. But he couldn't tell them to drop it and just quit acting like babies. He had to help them come to some agreement that they could not come to on their own. It wasn't, look, just forget what your, your issue is. Don't worry about it. Just drop it. There, there was more than that. He had to tell them to find some common ground outside themselves. So what does he say? Find common ground in the Lord. It's unity, not uniformity. He didn't say you guys just need to drop it and agree to disagree or, or just simply get along. 
or get on the same page, he understands there are going to be differences of opinions, even in the church. We, we, I know, have some folks here who don't see exactly the same thing that everybody else sees. And you look at those folks and you say, what's wrong with you? This is the way it ought to be. And they look at you and say, what's wrong with you? This is the way it ought to be. Paul says there are going to be obviously differences of opinion, but that does not have to divide you. Our goal is unity, not uniformity, because good luck getting everybody to do things your way. Unity, though, is based upon a shared love for Jesus, shared love for His Word, His mission, His finished work on the cross. Everything else can be a detail. If we can agree on those things in the church, let me tell you this, if we can agree on those things, then everything else is minor. We do not have to see eye to eye on all the details. And I'm not talking me against you. I'm just talking us in general. We don't have to see eye to eye on all the details, and that's okay. But I'll tell you this. We don't have to let personal preference be what keeps us from moving forward together. We don't. And it's sad when that's what happens. Unity in relationships is not uniformity. Do everything I tell you to do. Let's all think exactly the same thing about everything. No, no, it, it's outside of us. It's in the Lord that we focus on our unity in Jesus Christ and say that's where we'll find our common ground. Because without unity, there's no stability in your relationships or in the church. Thirdly, another relationship stabilizer, and I think this one is extremely powerful and often overlooked, work on God's mission together. Paul in verse 3, he, he calls upon somebody who, who remains nameless in this particular chapter. He says, I also ask you, true partner, he uses teamwork terminology, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. He, he calls them to remember a time when they all worked together for God's mission. Help them, he says. They, they've worked with me in the past on this. Surely we can focus on that and get back to work on God's mission. He says, they've contended, they've labored, they've struggled along with me. They've worked with me. They've fought side by side. You know, it, it's what I imagine it's like for those who have served in combat. As we honor our veterans today, those who have gone into battle, probably, at least initially, didn't have much in common with those fellow soldiers. But you know how they refer to one another? They're brothers. They maybe were from different places, and they maybe outside of all of that didn't have a lot that they could talk about, but you know what? For life, those guys are together because they fought together. They trusted one another. They put their lives in each other's hands, and that is what drew them together. They worked on a common mission. There's something powerful. And there's something unifying about working together on a common goal and a common cause. And I'll say this, there is nothing more powerful than when believers in Jesus begin to work together. There's nothing more powerful and unifying than when we work together for God's mission. Not ours, not that of Elm Grove Baptist Church, not our own agenda, but for God's mission in the world. There is nothing more powerful and more unifying when believers in Christ do that. Some of you have experienced that. Some of you have been on a mission trip or a mission project or, or done some kind of work together and service together and you say, you know, I, I didn't really know them very well before that, but I tell you, there's something about them. We spent that time together and, and you know, we, we began to see how working together, it brought us together. There's no time for petty disagreements when you're working on God's mission. This week, if you've got a relationship, particularly, well, exclusively, I suppose, with another believer, figure out a way to work on God's mission together. 
Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's somebody here. I don't know. How can you work together on God's mission? Take the focus off of us and say, look, let's do something. Whether it's praying together, whether it's going and serving somewhere, whatever it may be, let's work on God's mission together. That'll solve a lot of relationship problems in your life and in the church. Because without a common mission, there can't be any stability. We don't have anything we can hold on to. It's just me. And it's just you. And it's just me against them. And you against them. And common mission draws us together. Number four... Another way, great way to stabilize your relationships in life and in the church is to spend time with Jesus. I love verse 4. Rejoice, he says. Be glad. He's on house arrest, by the way, when he says that. Just think of the context and the power that he has. Rejoice. He says, in the Lord. Don't just make it up. Don't just have a happy day. Don't worry, be happy. That's not what he's talking about. Rejoice in the Lord. That means to be delighted based upon the fact that you've spent time with him. It's derived from an experience with someone or something. In the Lord, he says. And he says it again. Again, I say rejoice. Rejoicing will leave little time or little desire to argue and contend with other people. When you've been with Jesus, when you've rejoiced in him and you've derived pleasure from being with him... It leaves you little time and desire to argue with other people. It really does. Now, that's easier said than done. I get it, because those people aren't necessarily going away. They're difficult to be around. There's something, obviously, about being with Jesus that changes us in our relationships with others and in the church. I'm convinced that the people who are causing the most problems in our world, the people who cause the most problems in your life, the people who cause the most problems in any church are those who have simply not been with Jesus. I'm convinced of that. And I'm convinced that the answer to most of our relationship problems in our lives, in the church, wherever, is for us to spend more time with Jesus. You say, that doesn't even, that's just cliche. No, it's not. It's the whole crux of our relationship with Him. I'm convinced that any problems that we find in the church can, in most cases, be traced back to people who love themselves, their preferences, and their power more than they love the Savior of the church. That's hard to handle. It's hard for me to handle because I have to answer to that too. But I'm convinced of that. And so when any relationship difficulties arise, on your side of things, all you maybe can do is go to Jesus. Spend time with Him. Be encouraged by that time with Him. Be energized by it. And then leave that time, as Paul says, rejoicing from what you've derived from being with Him, rejoicing in who He is and what He has done and who you are in Him, in the mission that He has for you, rather than being focused on fighting battles that don't advance His kingdom. How much time do we waste? How much time do we spend fighting battles that have no eternal significance? Without spending time with Jesus, there can be no stability in your relationships or in the church. You just can't. Number five, lay down your quote-unquote rights and do it now. Verse five, Paul says, Let your graciousness be known to everyone. That word graciousness means reasonableness, yielding, gentleness, kindness, courteousness, Uh, refusing to speak evil of someone, it really carries the connotation of the attitude of kindness when the expected response to what's happened to you is retaliation. 
That's what it means. Everybody expects you're going to retaliate, and what you return instead is kindness. It also has the idea that that, that you're not worried about the letter of the law or custom, meaning I'm not worried about what I deserve and what I'm entitled to. I'm simply going to be gracious. I'm laying down my rights. And Paul says, let that be known to everyone. What should you, what should I, what should we be known for? Our graciousness. Our willingness to lay down our rights in the service of God and to other people. Because if everyone is fighting for and defending and insisting on their rights, there can be no stability in your relationships or in the church. It can't happen. The opposite of that is to be unyielding, hard-headed, self-determined, dominant of other people. Let that never be said about us as individuals, individual believers in Christ, that we are hard-headed, self-determined, and dominant of other people. Are we to be hard-headed on the truth of the gospel? Yes, but that's not what we're talking about. In our relationships, may it be said of us that we are gracious because we have been with Jesus and we love Him. And then number six, Paul closes with this. Be alert to God's presence. Verse five, let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. That's really a transition from this particular thought to what we'll see in a couple of weeks when we pick this back up when I get back. But he says the Lord is near. And however you look at it, whether in space, He is near us, His presence is always with us, or in time, His return is near. However you look at it, it's true. God is both near us in space and near us in time. His return could happen at any moment. And I really believe that if we cared that He is watching and that we will answer for our relationships, we'd operate differently. And many of you obviously do. You care. Remember and be alert to God's presence. Because unless you are mindful of the constant presence of God, there's not going to be stability in your relationship. You'll just operate from your own sinful nature. His nearness makes us pause, doesn't it? (laughs) If God is near and God is watching, how should I handle this? It gives us reason to rejoice. The Lord is with us and His return is imminent. It helps us in our approach to others. God is not leaving us on our own to deal with all this. And as we'll see in a couple of weeks, it helps us to defeat our anxiety. This week while I'm gone... I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to call every one of you. I'll have plenty of time. I'll be standing in line at Disney World. I'm going to call every one of you. Start with you. This week, I want you to take one of these stable. Leave them on the screen. Here they all are. One of them. And one relationship and put them together. I gave you six things. This is multiple choice. You can choose this week one. You may choose all six. You may, all right, I'm getting aggressive. That's fine. But I just want to encourage you, start with one of them. What relationship is it in your life that is, is, is out of whack, is not stable? What is it that one of these things needs to be applied to that? How can you put one stabilizer and one relationship together and see what God does? How can you do it? Maybe you just take your notes and you say, I'm going to go back over this. And that relationship in my life, I'm going to apply lead with love. I don't care how much it costs me this week. 
I'm going to strive not for uniformity to try to get everybody to do what I want them to do, but just unity in the Lord. Pick one and one relationship and put them together. That's simple enough, isn't it? That's something you can go on. Paul repeats three times in this passage the words, in the Lord. Let me make it very, very clear this morning. None of what I have talked about is possible outside of an ongoing, loving, deepening relationship with Jesus Christ. It's impossible. Because if you are not in the Lord, you are outside the Lord, operating on your own gifts and abilities and strengths, and not His. Yours are limited and sinful and dead. His are not. It is only as you and I are in the Lord that we can have stability in our relationships and in our church. And so I simply ask, just in case, are you in the Lord? Have you surrendered your life to Him in faith, believing He is your only way for salvation? Believing that you do need forgiveness from sin because sin has alienated you from God and made you an enemy of God and you are dead and need life. Are you in the Lord? Not meant to scare you, just simply to tell you the truth. That there are two ways in life you can go. You can be dead or you can be alive. You can be alive and only with Jesus can you be alive or you can be dead and on your own. Are you in the Lord? This morning I would encourage you to take one of those stabilizers, one relationship, put them together, but only after you have made sure by faith in Jesus alone for salvation, that you are in Him. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we pray in these closing moments that you would call us to a response. That you'd help us see what it is. Lord, I know many of us already have a stabilizer and a relationship in mind. God, give us boldness this week. Help us to trust You. Lord, I pray for those who need to surrender their lives to You. I pray today would be the day. They not wait another moment to say yes to Your gift of salvation, Your gift of life. I pray today would be the day they cross over from death to life. Help us, Lord. As you've called us to stand firm, to be stable, help us in our relationships, help us in our church. We look forward to what you'll do as we trust you, as we obey. We pray in Jesus' name.